Good morning. You enjoying yourselves so far? I'm so glad that you're here. It's been a rich time. Can we give thanks to our band and for all the pastors volunteering to play with Michelle and Mike and Nicole? And uh, just uh, appreciate their efforts. Well, what's unique about this conference is that uh, the way in which the speakers are set up is that we have the evening set aside for precisely what Laura brought last night, kind of this refreshing piece to pastoral ministry that enables us, eight days after Easter, with a lot of fatigue, um, to hear how we can be pastors on the spiritual side of things. Very few conferences, though, have what we have in the mornings as well. That is to say, exposition and teaching on how we can go preach and teach Scripture. It's a very unique thing. I haven't come across this hardly anywhere in terms of a five or four days sessions on, on scriptural exposition. This has been a huge part of this conference, continue to be a huge part of this conference. And uh, if you remember, we've had a string of, of great commentators on the Gospels of people who've written great commentaries on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And a few years ago, we invited uh, Ross Wagner to come with the express purpose of avoiding the Gospels. We wanted to, which he jokingly said, you want me to avoid the Gospel? No, not, we want you to do something else in the New Testament. And so he did First Peter. This year, we get to move, yes, into the Old Testament. Remember that? Yes. Presbyterians used to know this really well, and so we want to revisit that. And uh, Ian Proven is a name that I remember from my seminary days, and it was commentary on first, er, the Kings, and uh, recommended, actually, highly from uh, one of my Princeton professors, which was wonderful. And um, his name came up uh, uh, quite a number of times, actually, recently for the conference. We've had it recommended on the sheets to invite uh, a friend of mine, Scott, was encouraging that. And last year, we had a number of people sit down at the tables and say, you know what? You should extend an invitation to uh, this guy up in Canada, but he's not Canadian. And uh, he's actually from Scotland. His name is Ian Proven. And uh, Ian is, er, has been the Marshall Shepherd Professor of Biblical Studies at Regent College since 1997. Uh, received his MA at Glasgow University in Medieval History and Archaeology, his BA from London Bible College in Theology, and his PhD from Cambridge. His academic teaching career took him to King's College London, the University of Wales, and the University of Edinburgh, where he was senior lecturer in Hebrew and Old Testament. He's the author of the Biblical History of Israel, um, uh, against the Grain, Selected Essays, and if you look online in terms of the online chatter related to a book called Serious, Seriously Dangerous Religion, What the Old Testament Really Says and Why It Matters, you will find review after review after review looking at that and saying this is an amazingly important book in Old Testament studies. Uh, he's just released a book by Erdman's called Discovering uh, Genesis. Uh, just came out. It's available now, and uh, he, of course, is an ordained minister in the, of the Church of Scotland. And so of all these wonderful things that we've said in terms of bibliography and uh, his recommendations to come here, we've really only invited him, though, for one reason. Right here, my friends. Right here. So without further ado, 
All rise. His last name is Mackenzie. He's the real deal. So we are coming home this year. So friends, Old Testament Presbyterian from Scotland, I invite Ian Proven to come up and speak to us this morning. Good morning, everybody. Well, that was spectacular. My wife was just saying that's the best piper we've heard outside Scotland. So that's... Uh, it's, it's good, you know, because it's great. Normally what they do, you get somebody introducing me, you know, and they'll try and do um, Scotty from Star Trek, thinking, <laughs> thinking they can do a Scottish accent without realizing that Scotty from Star Trek was a Canadian who couldn't do a Scottish accent. <laughs> so that was much better. Um, I feel as if I need to get... Uh, a couple of things out of the way right at the beginning, um, just by way of preliminaries. Um, so let's deal first of all with the name issue. Um, the, <laughs> number two uh, on the list of names, most commonly misspelled, mispronounced cosmos, is Habakkuk. He's an Old Testament prophet, right? One B, three Ks, right? So that's number two. Uh, number one. Um, it, <laughs> People tend to know there's two eyes somewhere, and the, the, the second eye moves around. It, some, sometimes it's I-I-A-N, and then they, that's not right, they put an extra A in to compensate. Sometimes it goes to the second name between the A and the N. That's very common as well. Um, so that's how it's spelled. This is how it's, he got it right, Troy did. Ian Proven. Say it together. Ian Proven, and that's out of the way now. We can relax, okay? Both of them very short vowels, which you nice people can't say, but that's okay. If you make the effort, we'll be good. The second thing is I want to be very clear, in the, in, particularly in the light of uh, Laura's mistaken enthusiasm, as I saw it, uh, for T-shirts and stuff. I want to make it very, very clear. I do not uh, desire... A t-shirt. Um, this is partly because a number of years ago, my church already gave me one. Um, 
the, the thing you need to know about this t-shirt is actually I was born in 1957, so <laughs> it does just show you what a remarkable child I was, actually. <laughs> so, in, in utero. So, to the business at hand. Uh, when I was a child uh, growing up in Scotland, of course, Scotland was virtually a Presbyterian country in those days, really. Your national identity, for most, but the vast majority of people, to be Scottish was to be Presbyterian, for the, for the great majority of people. Uh, churches were well attended. Um, so church life was flourishing. I'm not saying that Christian life was necessarily flourishing, but church life sure was. Uh, there were some key expectations that had built up over a long period of time that congregations had of their uh, ministers. And one of these was that each Sunday morning, because it was always a he in those days, each Sunday morning, he would preach a great sermon. That was almost the only thing that mattered, actually, to many folks, was, was that that would happen. And there were parameters to this sermon. Uh, one of the most important parameters was that the sermon would take the Old Testament reading and the New Testament reading, those were the days, uh, from earlier in the service, and the minister would bring these into meaningful conversation with each other, so that everyone would hear the whole counsel of God on whatever the, the subject was. The Old Testament text could well be, on any given Sunday, the guiding text or the leading text. And woe betide any preacher who betrayed this trust. Uh, it was unthinkable, in fact, that that trust would be broken. It was unthinkable that any sermon would ever be preached on the New Testament alone all by itself. This, we knew, was something that only the Baptists did. <laughs> um, there weren't many Baptists in our town when I was growing up, and nobody really knew very much about the ones who did live there. They were a separated people, as it were. But one thing we did know, and that was that the Baptists were up to no good. <laughs> um, in all sorts of ways, and that included what we would have called unorthodox preaching. It would have included the futile attempt, as we saw it, to be New Testament Christians. Now, times have changed in my home country. I don't know if times have changed in the U.S. over the same period of time, or whether Presbyterians here were never quite committed to the whole Bible to begin with. I have no way of knowing that. It could be or it could not. Perhaps there were always more New Testament Christians in the world than I ever imagined growing up. But certainly, my impression of the contemporary scene in many places is that genuine preaching from the Old Testament, or even preaching that seriously involves the Old Testament, is not necessarily viewed with great favor. Not even among Presbyterians, not even among Presbyterian uh, preachers. Uh, now, it may well be that I have before me today, here in this room, all 150 of the obvious exceptions to this rule. <laughs> if you tell me that, I'm obliged to believe you as a Christian brother. Uh, if so, uh, good for you. But generally, I have to say, I've been over on this side of the Atlantic now for 18 years, 
Generally, I have to say, it doesn't really matter which denomination, which kind of church it is. If there is an Old Testament scripture reading in the morning service, and quite frankly, there usually is not, but even if there's a reading, it's not typically the case that the sermon will ever refer very much to that reading, and almost certainly it will not refer to it in what I would call a serious way. It will be referred to maybe in a kind of let us despoil the Egyptians kind of a way. Uh, as, as, I, as I like to put it, where uh, the preacher is content to grab a few trinkets from the textual bystanders, as it were, on the way out of Egypt, plundering what he can on the way to the promised land of the New Testament. That's, that's, that's as good as it gets in many churches. Now, I feel the need for full disclosure right at the beginning of this relationship. You've been very honest with me so far. I've had lots of people coming up and apologizing in advance for all sorts of things that are about to happen this week, apparently. (laughs) It's uh, it's very comforting. All I want to say is it wasn't in the literature I was sent in the mail. I I have to be honest with you right up front. I find this approach to the Old Testament to be highly problematic. And in fact, I've devoted a lot of my teaching and writing career to persuading people not to take the approach I've just described. This is not because I was taught necessarily a different approach as a Presbyterian child, as a matter of teaching. What I'm describing happened, but it wasn't intentional. It was just cultural, I think. Truth be told, quite a bit of what I was taught as a Presbyterian child has turned out to be neither true nor helpful. Uh, There have been a number of moments uh, just like this one, in fact. Uh, It is neither tradition nor biography that leads me to this uh, disdain for the, the view of preaching in the Bible as I've just described. Why I really find this approach problematic is because I think it stands greatly at odds with how our Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles have instructed us to go about our business. That's the main thing. Therefore, I consider it, frankly, and I'm sorry if I upset you right away, but I really do think it's a scandalous approach to the Old Testament. It's a strong word, but I think it's appropriate. Uh, It's inevitably damaging to the church, I think, to approach things in this way and to the mission of the church. So I don't think it's a trivial issue. I think it's a big deal how we read, how we preach the Old Testament, and indeed whether whether we do. Um, So I want to begin our week together because I I can't take it for granted that you would immediately connect with me on this point and, and know exactly why I say that. So In this first session, I I want to do some explaining of myself, because if I don't, nothing else we do together will will make as much sense. Uh, So I do do need to explain. There's a certain danger in explaining. The danger is that in doing so, I'll be covering ground that many of you know or might know quite uh, uh, well. So there's a danger right at the beginning that you're going to be saying to yourselves, Inside your head, of course, not out loud, because I know you're very nice people. Uh, there's a danger. Well, that, you'll say that's pretty basic stuff. Well, maybe, maybe it is. 
if indeed you have my permission to regard the next 40 minutes as a return to Bible 101, uh, and, and if it is, then I apologize, but I do not repent. Uh, that's a very important distinction, which I think we should just take 20 seconds to ponder before I go on. Oh, you can't see that? Okay, I forgot the age profile of the group, right? <laughs> Um, so, uh, the little guy. I'm going to start apologizing to all the people I've insulted by telling them I'm sorry you were offended. Other guy. Is that a real apology? I can't see it now. Uh, small guy. No, that, no that's, that's what's so great. It allows me to retain the impact of the original insult while attacking on the implied bonus insult of you are over an oversensitive ninny. <laughs> Other guy. But that's kind of rude because it's sort of saying the guy is too dumb to realize that. Small guy, I'm sorry you were offended. <laughs> Other guy, apology accepted. <laughs> so we see a lot of that in our culture, right? Apologies that aren't the least apologetic, really, when you get right down to it. I'm awfully sorry that you were offended. Um, so I'm apologizing, but I'm not repenting. Um, because even if what I'm going to say in the next little while here is obvious, I actually think we need to remind ourselves continually of the sorts of things I'm going to say because we live in a culture that's uh, forgetful above many other things. I mean, just forgetful. And we live in a church culture that's forgetful. And we need to actively remember these things and help others to remember them too. So I have three headings. Why should we read and preach the Old Testament as Christian Scripture? How should we do it? And what difference does it make? That's what we'll do for the next uh, little while this morning. I want to begin with a, a, a reading that uh, in the context where we are in the Christian year is actually astonishingly appropriate. Uh, Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 27, reading from the NIV. That same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them then, Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, how foolish you are, 
and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This is the word of the Lord. It's a very well-known post-Easter story. And the obvious point to which I want to draw your attention is simply this, that when Jesus wants these two confused disciples to understand what's going on in their lives, he takes them to the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. This literature, he says, is the literature you really need to understand if you're going to understand who I am and what's going on in your lives at the moment. In other words, they need to understand, above all, pre-existing Scripture. Scripture that was already the Scripture of all the Jews has now become Scripture specifically for Jews who accept Jesus as Messiah and Lord. Very soon... The same scriptures will become scripture for the Gentiles. I don't know if you've ever considered really the the deep significance of that. That these alien texts, as it were, culturally speaking, become the scriptures for the Gentile churches and not just for the Jewish churches. This scripture that we're talking about exists before there is a Christian church. The Bible exists before the church, in fact. Not yet the complete Bible that you and I know, but nevertheless, the Bible, for sure, comprising fundamentally what in Jesus' time usually was called the Law and the Prophets. Uh, It's a rather unimaginative title, I grant you, but there, there it is. That's what it was called. It's the Law and the Prophets that are typically the phrase used when the Old Testament's referred to in the New Testament. In everything... Do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the Law and the Prophets, the Old Testament. The Law and the Prophets were proclaimed until John, Luke 16, verse 16. And slightly later in this passage in Luke's Gospel that we've just been reading, Jesus says that everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. So there's a slightly larger way of talking about it. Uh, the only explicit reference, in fact, in the New Testament to a tripartite canon uh, rather than just a bipartite one. But the point is this, the main point is this, that Scripture existed before the church did, and it is constantly referenced as Scripture by Jesus during his earthly ministry. Consider how many times in his teaching and his disputes he prefaces what he's about to say with statements like, it is written that. And that obviously is meant to be the end of the conversation, as it were. It is written that. Consider how many times more generally Jesus bases his teaching or arguments on Old Testament Scripture. Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20, he clearly envisages that the authority of the Old Testament will extend well beyond the period of his earthly ministry and into the distant future. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, he says. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, 
not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That seems to be a pretty long view. And that's consistent with what happens on the Emmaus Road. Uh, notice what he doesn't say to those disciples on the Emmaus Road. He doesn't say, Behold, I am risen, and Pentecost is just around the corner, so forget about all those outdated Jewish texts. He doesn't say that. This is not a temporary passing set of texts now left behind in the post-resurrection period. It is the still living, present, active Word of God for those disciples on that road, not just for people prior. The Word that they have been so very foolish and slow of heart in failing to believe, the Word they must now believe, in fact. After Jesus comes, the apostles Unsurprisingly, they take their lead from Jesus. Of course they did. That's what being a disciple means. And so the apostles also regard the Old Testament as fundamental, ongoing Scripture. The Apostle Paul often applies the Ten Commandments to various ethical situations he's dealing with in the churches. He applies Leviticus 19, verse 18, broadly speaking to everything else. And we all know what Leviticus 19.18 says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's a, a citation of a text from the Old Testament, and we often cite it. I'm not sure we necessarily know where it originally comes from. The apostolic view of things is most clearly expressed in a verse we almost certainly do know off by heart, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. Every part of Scripture is God-breathed and useful in one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live in God's way. Every part of Scripture. What does that mean? Every part of the Old Testament is what it means. Because the New Testament doesn't exist yet, does it? At the point when Paul is writing that, yes? So every part of the Old Testament remains useful to Christians for these purposes. That's the Scripture we need to know about. That's the Scripture that teaches us truth, exposes our rebellion, corrects our mistake, and trains us to live in God's way in the church, not somewhere else. So, what is the fundamental rule of faith and life which our Lord Jesus and his apostles have given to the church for our guidance? The most fundamental part of that rule of life and faith is the Old Testament. That's, uh, I think, pretty clear from these texts. And it's because the early post-apostolic church fathers understood this that they also constantly cite and allude to the Old Testament. Christopher Seitz, a very fine Old Testament scholar, teaches in Toronto, puts it this way, the Christian church at its origin received the scriptures of Israel as the sole authoritative witness. These scriptures taught the church what to believe about God, who God was, how to understand God's relationship to creation, Israel, and the nations, how to worship God, and what manner of life was enjoined in grace and in judgment. It is not possible, says Chris Seitz, to speak of Christ 
without speaking of him in accordance with the scriptures. That was what had to be demonstrated. It's what's happening now in accordance with the scriptures. Right? We tend to put it the other way around. We think we know Jesus, now we have a problem to solve with the Old Testament. The original problem was the opposite. We know what the Old Testament says. How on earth do we square all this strange stuff that's going on in the Gospels? That was the way around the problem was. And it remained that way in the first two centuries of the church's life. The scriptures of Israel gave the church its fundamental orientation to reality. In accordance with these scriptures was what had to be demonstrated. And that is why, and this is a rather astonishing fact, and people find this typically quite surprising when I say this, but this is why it is not reference to the apostolic literature that you find in the first two centuries among the church fathers. That's not what you find. It is reference to Old Testament scripture that you find in the Christian writers of the first two centuries A.D. Now, we know that the Apostle Paul's letters were already circulating in the churches by the end of the first century. But the second century Christian apologists display very little trace of those writings in their writing. And none of them explicitly appropriates the Apostle Paul's thought. That's not because they thought the Apostle Paul was wrong, of course. It's not because the Apostle Paul was not valued. It's just that these early post-apostolic Christians regarded Paul's teaching in exactly the way that Paul regarded his own teaching, namely exegesis of Old Testament Scripture in the light of the Christ event. That's what he thought he was doing, and that's how other people treated his literature in the first two centuries too. The Old Testament was the reference point, as it was for Jesus himself. And every new teaching was assessed in relation to the old. Every new teaching had to be grounded in the old. And new teaching was true very largely to the extent that you could show that it was a rearticulation of, a correct exegesis of, what was already there. Irenaeus of Lyon, around 180 AD, is the first Christian writer in history to cite more New Testament texts than Old Testament texts. 180 AD. That's a long time after the apostles are writing their letters and the gospel writers are writing their gospels. And this brings us to a moment in Christian history that you all know about, I'm quite sure, but whose great importance cannot be underestimated. The rise and fall of the heretic Marcion of Sinope. You may recall from your church history classes and so on that Marcion centered his Bible on ten of the Apostle Paul's letters. So this was novel. This was new. This was outrageous, actually, in most people's eyes. And he rejected the Old Testament as Scripture in its entirety. Marcion went for a slimline Bible, <laughs> edited in support of his Gnostic beliefs rather than Christian beliefs. And uh, I won't go into how Gnosticism is different from Christian faith, but it is, and the early fathers recognized it, and that's why Marcion was condemned as a heretic. So what the Gnostics had to do 
to make their very different pseudo-gospel appear to be at all plausible, they had to have a Bible that appeared to be supporting it in various ways. So they needed a much smaller Bible. Not as small as this one, but... Uh... <laughs> so that's what they did. They constructed one. And this made it easier to conform the Bible to certain types of Hellenistic philosophy, because Gnosticism is simply, as one author has put it, Platonism run wild. It's a particularly exotic form of uh, Platonic philosophy. So Marcion's Bible did not contain the Old Testament, but of course it also could not contain many of the apostolic writings either because they were all building on the Old Testament. So it wasn't just the Old Testament that went. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew had to go, obviously. And then you had to edit everything else really, really heavily so as to remove all dependence on the Old Testament. So you can see why it was such a small Bible and why it was obviously wrong-headed and why Marcion was uh, excommunicated from the church. So the church fathers saw this very, very clearly. And indeed, Irenaeus of Lyon is the great anti-Gnostic early Christian bishop who wrote extensively against the Gnostics and deployed Old Testament scripture extensively in showing that they were mistaken. Now, because the Gnostics were disputing the unity of the Bible, he also had to show that the New Testament was based on the Old, which is why he cites more New Testament texts in the end. But he's, he's pretty even-handed, really, across the whole thing, because he has to show the unity of the Bible, essentially. That's what he, he does. So Marcion put this on the agenda. Irenaeus opposed it. The early church uh, rejected it. Uh, and it's around the same time as Irenaeus that we find our very first extant list of apostolic books. This is where the New Testament writings first, as it were, hit the radar screen in terms of a list. It's the well-known Muratorian fragment from Rome, dates around about 180-200 AD. All the Gospels are listed here except Matthew. Matthew was present in the original quite definitely, but the manuscript is damaged. Uh, all of Paul's epistles, two of letters of John, and the epistle of Jude. So by the end of the second century AD, what do we discover? The development of the authority of the New Testament texts, they are beginning to be cited regularly alongside the Old Testament texts. So now we're on the way to the Bible we do know about as things are formalized. Right? So things are obviously circulating, they're being used, they're received as authoritative. And the New Testament is gradually rising to public visibility in exactly the same way as the Old Testament already is. But all the way through the succeeding period, as you track usage of Scripture among all the famous church fathers that you know about, people like Augustine, for example, the Old Testament is routinely cited as Scripture um, when, uh, on, on, on all matters, but particularly when it comes to central doctrinal matters. And Augustine gives us a particularly powerful example of the post-apostolic church's convictions about the unity of Scripture when he says this, in the Old Testament there is such strong prediction and pre-announcement of the New Testament 
that nothing is found. Notice the strength of that. Nothing is found in the teaching of the evangelists and the apostles, however exalted and divine the precepts and promises, that is lacking in those ancient books. Nothing is new about the New Testament. What an astonishing thing for Augustine to say. Now, later in life, he mulled over his writings, and you may, and some of you will know, he wrote a little retraction of some of the younger, more rash things he said. And he came to question this statement he had made. And in his retractions, he puts in the word almost. Almost nothing is found in the teachings. But that's still a very, very strong statement. So, fundamental convictions about biblical unity. You can't have the one without the other. Uh, you can't have the New Testament without the Old. You can't have Christ without the Old because Christ is who gave us it all in the first place. And although there are then all sorts of arguments that arise about how to interpret the unity of the Bible and all of that, and, and we could get into that, but we won't get into a lot of it, because my main point is not the how-to question at the moment. The main point at the moment is, why do we receive the Old Testament as active living Scripture? And we're beginning to build towards an answer to that question. When we get to the Reformers, Again, profound emphasis on the unity of the Old Testament. Uh, the reformers could be scathing about how many people were how pe many people were reading it. They were particularly scathing of allegorizing, as you know. Uh, in many ways, allegorizing was the natural approach to take to the Old Testament if you were a classically educated person living in the post-apostolic era. In the Roman Empire, the most natural thing in the world would be to allegorize because you had learned that at school. It's how the Greeks dealt with the awkwardness of Homer. Homer was now thought to be rather scandalous, but he was also authoritative. How do you solve the problem? You allegorize Homer. That's where allegorizing uh, comes from. So, it's certainly true that many Christians through the patristic period and through the Middle Ages, that was one of their go-to mechanisms for solving difficult puzzles. The point being, though, they only had the difficult puzzle to solve because they already accepted the Old Testament as Scripture. So, even in the misreading, as I would put it, there's something very profound. Otherwise, you would just ignore it. You wouldn't even worry about allegorizing. You would just dismiss it. The Church Fathers continued to preach from the Old Testament, they wrote commentaries in the Old Testament. They referenced the Old Testament uh, constantly. To do anything else would have been to admit that Marcion was right after all. And the Protestant reformers self-consciously stood in the same line of succession, even insisting on the necessity of Christians in the 16th century learning Hebrew. Ordinary Christian folks, so that they could read the Old Testament on their own terms, because as you know, the Reformers recognized that sola scriptura, if it was to be real, you had to have a literate reading Christian public. And since they believed that the scripture we were talking about was the scripture in the original languages, logic and theology told them Christians should learn both Greek and Hebrew. And they were deadly serious about this. Uh, in 1529, Martin Butzer, one of the Strasbourg reformers, could even foresee a future in which Hebrew would be universally spoken in every Christian city. 
That's what he, he thought. That's what he looked for. Uh, Huldrich uh, Zwingli in Switzerland once said that Bible translations were only for beginners, functioning like flotation devices for those who were learning to swim. <laughs> if you could swim in Hebrew and Greek, you did not need help to stay afloat any longer. <laughs> serious, serious commitment to the Old Testament of Scripture. And no one, I suggest, who wants to stand in this great line of succession from the apostles down through the church fathers and down through the reformers to the present day, no one can possibly be relaxed about a contemporary situation in which, to put it mildly, such seriousness is not displayed. No one can be relaxed about a contemporary situation in which all too often in our churches it does look as if Marcion, after all, has won. So, why must we read the Old Testament as Scripture and preach it? It's really, really simple. Because Jesus and the apostles gave us the Old Testament as Christian Scripture. And clearly, they expect us, like all of their faithful followers through the ages, to receive that gift gladly and to get on with the, with the business to get on with the job. That's why I don't think it's a trivial matter. It goes to the heart of our discipleship. It should be regarded that way. It's usually not. But as far as I can see, uh, the logic of that, the theology of it, the scripture of it, is pretty clear. Okay. Supposing I have convinced you of this, let us suppose for the moment I live in hope, Okay, uh, us all very well, um, speaker, but how should we read and preach to allow the Old Testament to be Christian Scripture? Well, let's begin with the Reformers on this occasion, because, I mean, that's where mainly we, we draw, we think of our succession as Presbyterians, as coming from the Reformation. The Reformers certainly held a very particular opinion about this question, and I agree with them. I still think this is right. Um, Old Testament Scripture, they said, is just like New Testament Scripture, and it must be read literally. And they were very hostile to non-literal reading. They were very hostile to allegorizing in particular. So here's a couple of quotes. Just as a matter of interest, by the way, is that way too small for you guys at the back? <laughs> no, I wasn't joking. It was a serious question because I, I can... When you don't know the setup, obviously, it's a bit hard to predict. So I'll, I'll work on the overheads for future, for future sessions. But I will read these. Martin Luther... It was very difficult for me, he says, to break away from my habitual zeal for allegory. And yet I was aware that allegories were empty speculations and the froth, as it were, of Holy Scripture. It is the historical sense alone which supplies the true and sound doctrine. That was Luther. Prior to Luther's time, people often looked for the Word of God in Scripture, not in the ordinary human words, not in their ordinary communicative intent, but in the spiritual sense by which they meant something entirely uh, different. The spiritual sense was often accessed through allegorical reading, and many people held a preference uh, for the spiritual sense. 
The idea was that spiritual meanings were um, contained in the, in the box, as it were, of the literal, and you had to kind of bring them out. The reformers took a very critical view, and they argued very strongly for the literal or historical sense of the text, by which they meant, really, reading the Old Testament in just the way you would read the New. Right? It's no more complicated than, than that. Um, the reason they were so vexed about this, and Luther is very strong on this, uh, Luther held, I think he was right in this, that the kind of reading we're talking about, the allegorizing reading, had actually led people to miss what Scripture was saying, because it was too easy to read in what you would have preferred it to say. That was the, that was the issue, right? Um, so here is uh, Luther once again. The allegorical methods with which Origen or Jerome sought to bring the Old Testament to the level of Christian taste and spirit, you can almost hear the sarcasm in that, by the way, in reality gave it the coup de grace. The allegorical interpretation killed the spiritual sense of the Old Testament. So the people who used it argued it led to the spiritual sense. Luther said, actually, the opposite is the case. You miss the heart of the whole business if you do this. And for Luther and the other reformers, the, the true spiritual sense was nothing other than the literal sense. And they didn't mean a wooden, foolish sense by that, of course. You understand, by literal, they completely understood that included metaphor and all the rest of it. They weren't foolish people. They were very well-educated people. Uh, John Calvin shared Luther's distaste uh, for these allegedly non-literal senses. He criticized Origen and others who, he said, seized the occasion of torturing Scripture in every possible manner away from the true sense. I love those guys. They concluded the literal sense is too mean and poor, and that under the outer bark of the letter there lurk deeper mysteries which cannot be extracted but by beating out allegories. And this they had no difficulty in accomplishing, for speculations which appear to be ingenious have always been preferred and always will be preferred by the world to solid doctrine. Now, there's a prophecy. Uh, along these lines, um, one of the things I kind of like, although I realize it can get unpleasant in the end, but they were pretty frank, plain speaking kind of guys, these reformers, right? Um, so, um, he refers in another place to these empty-headed creatures who, in reading allegorically, change dogs into men, trees into angels, and convert the whole of Scripture into an amusing game. And over against that, he argued for careful attention to the language, the grammar, the syntax, the historical context of the passage, various rhetorical devices used to communicate the message, and so on and so forth. So what we would call, I hope, serious Bible study in terms of uh, putting serious effort into the business. Uh, Martin Butzer referred to those who use the allegorical, to the allegorical method itself as a wax nose that can be twisted in any direction. <laughs> it's a rather famous quote, that one. The point that they correctly grasped, in my opinion, they correctly grasped is that if Scripture really is to function in the way that 2 Timothy 3.16 says, if Scripture really is to deal to correct us when we're wrong and to discipline us when we're going astray and all the rest of that, it has to be able to do that. It has to be able to bite, if I can put it that way. And uh, 
if we're to really be equipped for every good work by that means, then it needs to be able to speak in its own voice, in its own words. And God has chosen to address us through the words of ordinary folks, just like you and me back then. Um, if ordinary grammar and syntax are not our guide to that, what is our guide to that? If the Holy Spirit can operate in other ways in particular biblical texts, why not in all the biblical texts? And then what? I mean, suppose we apply the same rule to the New Testament. Where do we get then? Perhaps like Marcion's God, it's not really like the biblical God after all. Perhaps God himself is utterly different from what the Bible at first appears to say. And so they understood very well that this all begins to unravel really quite quickly. Uh, once the allegorical train leaves the station, who stops the train? <laughs> On what grounds? The author can't stop it because he was never asked about the departure in the first place. So if the author can't stop it, uh, who then stops it? Of course, the Council of Trent said the Roman Catholic Church stops it, but Presbyterians have usually been somewhat suspicious of that claim <laughs> and have thought that, that wasn't a wise thing to concede. Um, the trouble with allegory is it's just way, way too easy to bring all your own stuff with you into the text. Um, John Thompson, a more recent author, a Calvin scholar, uh, puts this quite strongly, but I think rightly, to construct an allegory or to read allegorically is certainly also to express one's own ideology and worldview in conscious or unconscious dialogue with, or perhaps in opposition to, the text from which one's allegory is ostensibly drawn. It's very hard to control it. How can Scripture really address us and correct us and challenge us if it doesn't have a voice of its own with which to do that? Uh, and, and so what they're arguing for is the same rules of interpretation ought to apply to the whole of Scripture, not just to one part, and worse, not just your favorite parts. Uh, because as we saw with Marcion, you could cut out bits of the New Testament as well, just as easily as you could uh, anything else. Uh, so uh, this, is, this is a big deal, and it really uh, matters. So let me give you an example, in case this is now floating a little bit too um, high above kind of facts. Let me give you an example of why uh, this uh, matters. Let's take the example of St. Ambrose, a very famous Christian, Bishop of Milan, instrumental in Augustine's conversion. Very significant uh, Christian figure. St. Ambrose reading the book of Genesis. Uh, we see Ambrose quite obviously reading the book of Genesis spiritually. Why is he reading it spiritually? Because he needs to find characters in that story that correspond to his ideals about what ought to be there, if I can put it that way. So Ambrose, like all of us, we all bring baggage and culture and worldview and everything else. So Ambrose is working very much with Neoplatonic ideals. And he's looking into Genesis to find people who match those ideals that he can hold up before his congregation and say, here we have a paragon of virtue for you to imitate. Now, you've read Genesis, right? <laughs> you can see this is going to be a stretch. <laughs> you with me? But Ambrose is not deterred 
he goes on anyway. And so he insists in his writing on Genesis that Jacob was a wise man living a happy life because he pursued reason and possessed a clear conscience. <laughs> now, would he have seen that as at all amusing? No. He was deadly, deadly serious. The whole problem is he would not have seen the problem, actually, that we've just immediately seen. Because, uh, because of his whole approach, right? The happiness of life, he says, does not lie in bodily pleasure, but in the conscience pure of every stain of sin. And then he goes to find a Jacob who corresponds to that. He can't conceive of the idea that God might have given us stories about the dark side of people in order to teach us stuff. It's just not on his radar screen. And so he doesn't get uh, Jacob at all. And indeed, the same is true of all the other characters he describes. Uh, you know, it's, it's rather akin to the modern view you sometimes find that because it's the Holy Bible, everybody in it has to be holy. It's a kind of presupposition that people have. And it's a very dangerous presupposition, as you well know as pastors, because if you choose the wrong character trait for imitation, you know, as I keep saying to my students, you can be biblical and disastrously wrong, as well as being biblical and right. It all depends what you mean by biblical. So knowing who it is you should be imitating when is a pretty important part of serious uh, Bible reading. So into the gap between the voice of the human author and the voice of God that opens up in this whole way of uh, reading, Scripture uh, comes anything you really want, and Scripture then uh, cannot bite back at the reader, cannot in fact challenge us about mistakes. Um, the Old Testament is particularly important in these respects because it is so alien to us in culture and therefore can, if we listen to it, address us about a whole bunch of things. But by and large, we prefer not to be challenged and shaped and so on, if we're, if we're really honest. Uh, I think that's just the human instinct, isn't it? That's what sin is. So this is not just a matter, I think, about imposing wrong ideas on Scripture. It's also a matter of taking really good ideas way too far. Uh, the Old Testament uh, prophesies, of course, about Christ. That's a really good idea. It's very important. But ever since Justin Martyr, people have been taking that idea, I think, way too far into Old Testament texts that don't, in fact, express that prophetic idea. And in doing so, we have risked discrediting the whole notion that the Old Testament's prophetic. Uh, even what is sometimes referred to as Christological reading of the Old Testament, I think, can take things too far. Because Christological reading can mean not just that Jesus Christ is the center of the whole biblical story, which is certainly true, but actually that Jesus is to be found everywhere in the Old Testament, which is a rather different thing. Uh, this is a particular um, trait of Lutheran hermeneutics, historically, uh, for example. It is as if Jesus, uh, Luke had, uh, this is what Luke uh, says, of course, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, and this is my little, little twist on this, as if he had said that he, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the scriptures only ever said things about himself. <laughs> which is not really what the text says, is it? The text actually says 
He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself, which is a significantly different thing, actually, right? Second uh, Timothy 3.16 ought to have said on this view, every part of scripture is God-breathed and useful for finding Jesus there. <laughs> Well, no, seriously, it ought to have done. If, if a certain way of reading is true, that's what the text ought to have said. Uh, but in fact, the text doesn't say that. We know what the text actually says, and it's a much bigger idea than that, actually. And it's much more about the effects of Scripture on us, actually, what it does for us than, than it is anything else. Um, now, I think the Protestant reformers understood all of this. I mean, they weren't perfect people any more than you and I are. It wasn't that all of their actual exegesis was stellar, necessarily. I don't think to be reformed nowadays means signing off on everything John Calvin ever said. Um, at least I hope it doesn't, otherwise I'm in big trouble. Um, because Calvin, like everybody else, in actual practice said things which, with the benefit of hindsight, perhaps might better not have been said, or at least not said in that way or whatever. Right? So that's not the point. But on the big issue of how we read, how we ought to read, for the Old Testament really to be Christian scripture for us, I think they were absolutely right. Now, I want to give one example very quickly as we come to an end of why this makes a difference. That was, I'm just going to skip over that. It's good, but I'm skipping. Um, what difference does this make when we get to real passages of scripture? Um, what difference does it make to our reading of the New Testament when we read and preach it truly in the context of Old Testament Scripture, as I believe we should. So I'm going to take, uh, we don't have time to read the passages, of course. I'm just going to put a bit of 2 Kings 5 up. Um, Acts 8 is the passage I'm comparing this with or reading it with, and that's the story, of course, of uh, Simon Major, as you remember, and the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Do you remember the Acts story, broadly speaking? Thomas Brodie has argued quite convincingly that Luke modeled both of these stories in Acts 8 on the Old Testament story of Naaman, the Syrian general, and Gehazi, Elisha's servant. In this Old Testament story, the Syrian general Naaman comes to Israel to find a cure for his leprosy. And he also finds God as it happens. That's the, the, the gist of the story in 2 Kings 5. Elisha's servant Gehazi tries to cash in on what has happened, and he becomes a leper. It's a kind of poetic justice in the story, right? So he does the wrong thing, and he uh, develops the same disease that Naaman has just been cured of. And Brody argues that Luke has distilled the essence of the Old Testament story, and he's used this as a framework for telling the story in Acts chapter 8. Naaman's status as a great man, his misguided preference for actions and objects that are great, says Brody, have been used to characterize Simon Magus, who wants, you remember, he wants the bonuses, as it were, the power of the thing. Naaman's status as a foreign royal official has been used to depict the Ethiopian eunuch. So he's saying that Luke consciously influenced by the Old Testament and quite consciously going about his business, is telling the story in Acts 8 so as to draw our attention, in fact, to these connections and thus to fill out the picture of what he's saying. Naaman arrives in Israel with scroll, a scroll and gifts, 
But he fails initially to do what he needs to do, which is to connect with the prophets of God. Um, The Ethiopian arrives in a similar way, in a chariot, in fact. In both texts, the foreign official washes and is renewed. The baptism in one case, the bathing in the Jordan, you remember, on the other. Um, Gehazi tries to cash in on the gift. That's an obvious parallel to the Simon uh, Magus idea. So that's all really, really uh, good. Um, I actually think myself that Brody's reading uh, can be improved upon, uh, but I'm not going to get into that just, just here at the moment because we are coming to the end of our time. What I just want to point out, though, just with this tiny, tiny example, and we'll be doing a lot more, obviously, in our other sessions on the how-to uh, questions. What I want to point out is that the assumption that the two Testaments are deeply and not trivially connected is what's driving Brody's reading here. That time and again, actually, when we read the New Testament, on the assumption, the very sensible assumption, that the New Testament authors knew their Old Testaments really well and were actually telling the the gospel story in ways deliberately to evoke the older story, that very often when we then go back to the Old Testament, we see much more clearly not what was imposed there by the New Testament authors, but what was already there that we just hadn't seen yet. So, for example, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but it says when Naaman comes out of the river, cured of his leprosy, that his skin is like that of a little child. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's very evocative, is it not, of baptism and new life and being a child and a lot of gospel themes. And those gospel themes are already there, I would argue, in Second Kings uh, chapter 5. In general, you may have been struck over the years reading the Gospels how many times the Elisha stories in particular evoked in Jesus' ministry. Just think of, think of a number of examples. Jesus heals lepers just like Elisha. He transforms water. He suspends the laws of gravity in relation to water. He raises the dead. He multiplies food. It looks like a lot of effort has been expended Uh, Not just by Jesus, in fact, in in following, as it were, in that path, but by the gospel writers in deliberately telling the story to us to draw attention to these facts. Um, And this is how the two Testaments actually, in reality, are closely uh, pulled together. And I I personally believe that uh, we just miss a, a huge number of opportunities in our in our preaching, by limiting our biblical resources. Um, And and partly it is, I think, because we perhaps don't feel confident enough. But what I want to do uh, with with these very small number of talks this week is perhaps, in some degree, to restore that confidence if it has been lost and to propose in all sorts of ways, uh, with different genres of the Old Testament, how we ought and how we can retrieve these resources as genuine scripture for ourselves in our preaching ministry. Um, So we're going to be looking uh, later, after the break, at Genesis 1 to 11. Um, And I'll say something about that because I, I have a feeling Genesis 1 to 11 feels to most preachers a bit like entering a shark tank, you know, so you just don't go there. Um, We'll look at uh, the rest of Genesis and narrative. We'll think a little bit about how preaching the law 
for example. We'll think about the prophets, the Psalms, and the wisdom literature. So that's the agenda. And um, I hope that insofar as I haven't annoyed you so far, at least I have interested you and stimulated you. And uh, we can enter the next session at least knowing what it is that I'm trying to do. And we'll see if I can bring you along with me as, as we go. Okay, that's all for the, for the moment. Thanks. All right, thank you, Ian. So we're entering into our small group time. And uh, again, just for those of you who are new, um, we wanted to make sure this was perfectly clear um, as we did go back to um, consult the founders. Um, the original manuscripts just simply refer to this time as smoking break. So we decided you don't have to smoke during this time. Uh, you can also drink if you like. So, <laughs> preferably coffee. There's coffee up back as well as other refreshments. Um, good time to use bathroom as well. If you have a group, some of you have groups that you've been a part of for years, this is a great time to reconnect. Also, um, if you don't have a group, you can either just find a group that's out there and join it. Just walk up, say, I'm in your group now. Um, otherwise, come up here and we'll put uh, some new groups together so that you can um, have a group, preferably five to six people. Um, there's also a group uh, section of about 11 questions in your book here. Don't answer all of them. That would give you about, um, each of you, 10 seconds per question to go through. But um, go ahead and, and break, do that, find a group, and if you don't have a group, come up here, we'll put you in a group. And the most important piece of this is be back here at 11.15 sharp. Go ahead. May the Lord lift his countenance on 